0: To have you here, I'm Rick Beard, Executive Director of the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library and Museum, and it's my pleasure to welcome you here this morning to Civil Conversations. This is the fourth year in a row that this conference has had something to say, or has begun to have a conversation about the Sesquicentennial of the Civil War. We met in Pittsburgh, Phoenix last year in Atlanta, and now here in Rochester, and I can I feel fairly confident in saying we'll be doing the same sort of meeting next year in Indianapolis and uh, the year after in Oklahoma City. Last year in Atlanta, uh, Dwight Pitcaithely led a session with Gordon Jones and David Blight, uh, a discussion that was really inspired by Robert Penn Warren's The Legacy of the, the Civil War. Uh, those of you who were there, you may remember the wonderful terms Treasure, Treasury of Virtue and The Great Alibi, two of uh, Penn Warren's formulations to talk about the northern and southern points of view or attitudes yeah, toward the war. Hey, what's up?
1: Morning, man. Morning. Morning. <laughs> you Good. Good.
0: Thank you. <laughs> this year, this year we're going to go in a, a different direction.
2: I'll say. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, that was not Robert Penn Warren. Um, <laughs> we're going to talk about what uh, many scholars and and uh, just uh, Civil War buffs might think of as the third rail of Civil War history or Civil War studies and that's the issue of slavery and its centrality to the war and uh, the all the events leading up to the war as well as many of the events in the aftermath of the war. We're fortunate to have with us today to lead that discussion Jim Horton. I hope many of you saw his program yesterday um, on uh, a book of essays. He's edited on the tough stuff of American history, The Interpretation of Slavery. Uh, James Oliver Horton is the Benjamin Banneker Professor of American Studies and History Emeritus at George Washington University. He's the Historian Emeritus at the National Museum of American History at the Smithsonian Institution, and he's Professor of American Studies at the University of Hawaii. He's been a senior Fulbright professor on two different occasions. He's lectured throughout Europe, Thailand, and Japan. He has served on the National Park Service Advisory Board and in 1996, was elected board chair. He's also served as senior advisor on historical interpretation and public education for the director of the National Park Service. He's also worked in our bailiwick on many occasions as an advisor to museums the Underground Railroad Freedom Center in Cincinnati, the National Civil Rights Museum in Memphis, Colonial Williamsburg, Monticello, and most recently as the supervising historian, I guess that's what they called you, at the New York Historical Society on their groundbreaking exhibit on slavery in New York City. He's one of two historians on the Abraham Lincoln Bicentennial Commission, and he's the author and or editor of a number of books, most prominently Slavery and Public History, a book about which he spoke yesterday, uh, Slavery and the Making of America, which accompanied a WNET PBS series, and In Hope of Liberty, Free Black Culture and Community in the North. So what we're going to do today is that uh, Jim is going to uh, talk at you for a bit, uh, show you some videos, some uh, images, and uh, as was the case last year, we hope that at the conclusion of his remarks we'll have a very lively discussion about what he's talked about, and what might be on your minds. We are recording this session, so when we get to the question and answer phase, I'm gonna stick a microphone in your face. Don't start talking until you've got that mic because we do wanna have this, uh, I was gonna say on tape, that's not really true anymore. We'll have it on DVD and um, the residual rights will be down to all of our benefits. So without any further ado, Jim Horton.
2: Well, thank you very much. Um, Let me first say, that I've done this using tape a number of times. (laughs) This is the first time I've done it using DVD so we'll see how the DVD goes but basically what I want to do first is to introduce the presentation by saying something that I think all of you already know and that is when you're doing public history and you're dealing with the presentation of the Civil War era and you're trying to link in your presentation, the institution of slavery with the coming of the war. You probably know this as well or better than I do, and that is sometimes you run into real resistance because in a variety of places in the nation, there are lots of people who do not want to make a link between the institution of slavery and the causes and the coming of the Civil War. Now, what I want to do first is to play a very short clip from a movie or a film that uh, the History Channel did a number of years ago. Maybe some of you have seen this, called "The Unfinished Civil War." Um, this is a, the, the first clip I want to show. Deals with Civil War reenactors. We will talk a lot about the Civil War reenactors. Maybe some of you know Civil War reenactors. But the, the reenactor you're about to meet is a person who's who lives in Hagerstown, Maryland. His name is John Crochet. And uh, just to set this up, after the uh, History Channel uh, presented this, they had a meeting of TV critics, and they asked me if I would come out and just talk to the TV critics about the Civil War, about the history of the Civil War. Well, John Crochet was there because he had his own view about the history of the Civil War. Now, without saying more about that, let me introduce you to John Crochet, and you can see uh, something of um, the the challenge of presenting the history of the Civil War under these circumstances. Now we'll see if this plays.
3: Hey, howdy, howdy. Hey, what's up? Good morning, man. Come on out. Yeah. How you doing? How'd you sleep, man? Good. Good. It's good to see you
4: guys again. I'm gonna go ahead and uh, make some coffee, cause that's the first thing. And we might be spying. in? No, uh huh. With the situation in South Carolina yeah. still just a blip on the radar screen, we visit Confederate reenactor John Crozet and his girlfriend Chris. They live just miles from the battlefield at Antietam site of the Civil War's bloodiest day of slaughter. This is pretty
2: good, Now what they're talking about in terms of the situation in South Carolina, does anybody know? The Confederate flag. As you remember, the Confederate flag flew over the Capitol building in Columbia, South Carolina. And as you also know, there was great controversy over this as we moved towards the beginning of the 21st century and in the, first, in the early days of the 21st century. At any rate, um, you will hear more about this but John Crochet is a really interesting person whose ideas I think we need to be aware of as we try to deal with the question of talking to the public about slavery and the coming of the Civil War.
3: Everybody has hobbies, and I don't like to refer to this as a hobby, because to me this isn't a hobby, this is a way of life. Um, I work to support that way of life. What I do for a living is, you know, I, I mean, I operate a forklift in a warehouse, uh, and it's uh, the people that work, you know, they agree with what I do. They think that a lot of the uh, issues that, are, that have come up today, you know, the, uh, the Confederate flag issue, most of them are very pro for that, you know, in other words, they keep it flying.
4: Even before you started this, what was your life like? Where were you born? I was born in Marlboro, Maryland. Uh,
3: I'm adopted. Uh, I never really knew my grown or father. Uh, I always had a fascination with the war, even as a child, I remember getting books from my father. And, uh, you know, as I was growing up, I remember my mother kind of telling me, well, you know, you're Southern, but you know, you might not like helping with that. Something to that extent. And I used to always wonder, well, you know, why are the southerners bad guys and the Yankees new guys? So, uh, uh, I had a lot of questions that I wanted answered. And I went up and I said to myself, hey, if I'm gonna dedicate myself, then I was gonna have to really give everything I had. This down here is where I store all of my reenacting gear. We'll be down here later when I get ready to go off to the battlefield and the reenactment. This is where it all happens. This is where the transformation takes place. When I come down here and I start to prepare to uh, go to an event, this right here starts the time travel. So as I'm getting prepared, the sands of this time period are going into the 1800s. The reason that I have this picture here Um, I live in Hagerstown. This is a picture of the dead Confederate soldiers in front of the Dunker Church. And um, the reason I have this picture is is because, well, first off, I don't live too far from the battlefield. And the second thing is, is that as I'm preparing to go to an event, I will continually, as I'm looking in the mirror, I'm preparing myself, I'll continually look at that picture, and I'll continually remember that it's not me, that it's not me, it's them. It's all them. That's who I do this for. Would you ever wear blue? No. Never. never. The only way I would wear blue is if I was laying in a coffin and they exhumed me and put that uniform on me because I, I just, uh, I don't believe, it's nothing against a soldier. I believe they were manipulated, but uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a Southern boy, you know, My, I wear the gray. Yeah. so. Uh, no disrespect to the Union soldiers. Were they courageous? Yes. Did they fight the valley? Yes. Will I wear the blue? No. In
4: 1997, John met his girlfriend Chris at a Civil War event. We're best friends. We have so much in common and we both have such a love for the history of the Civil War. And we just We just enjoy each other's company.
3: We're not so tied up in the fast-paced, money-making world that's out there now. Um, We don't even view the world out there now as our world. That's not our world. We don't live in that world. We are from another time period, uh, you know, I mean, uh, yes, we have modern conveniences and yes, we do this and that, but mentally, we are more in touch with
4: the past town is also home to Wayne and Sharon Hutzel, who head up a family oriented reenacting unit.
3: Our entire life centers around reenacting. It's not, you know, we have I have a job and I work around my job. It's his work going around reenacting. Our family vacations are centered around reenacting. Everything we do is centered around reenacting. Quiet oh, well. in the Fixed.
1: Play this. In
3: place.
4: Wayne serves as captain of a 25-man confederate regiment, the 3rd Arkansas Company H. Unlike the more hardcore reenactors in John's unit, Wayne and his men camp with their families. But the Huxels are willing to voice a passion about the war and its politics that few would be willing to express publicly.
5: I really do believe in the confederate
3: cause. I like to be a blaster at least. You have the yeah. own right to live the way you want with live to tell you can't you know, live that way I think it was wrong.
6: It had nothing to do with the
3: slavery issue for me I just totally believe that you know when they came in and said you know this is how we want you to live this is your land but I'm going to tell you how I want you to live on this land I think that was wrong in a lot of accounts you, know, you hear blacks talk about the northerners coming down and invading their land because it was a way of life for them you know they were taking care of and all that. once
7: the
4: war was over a lot of them didn't know what to do because they were so dependent on someone to take care of and they had a better
3: quality like, of, and whatever. To an extent, you know, I'm not saying they weren't, you know, always treated the best, but they weren't always, the books make them out to be all-slave or be, I don't, you know, I think that's cool.
4: When we visit Wayne and Sharon, they are playing host to several reenactors. One guest is Chris Anders, who's been reenacting since he was 15
3: like a lot of reenactors, I do both Federal and Confederate because they don't really have a political agenda with it. Uh, i trying to honor the sacrifices of both sides. You know, I'm trying to you know, try to do more of the historian part of it. A few years ago, I would starve myself on a day before going to an event just to try to get the sunken eye that well. Um, since then, I've matured a little bit. But if it happens, like if I'm at an event, uh, I start to get sick, I happen to run out of food, i all brought for the weekend or it's it's just downpouring rain. At that point the visualization process begins and I'm trying to experience more of that than just say let's go out and have a good time and you know burn power.
2: is going through the transformation Now, let me just say that my first introduction to Civil War reenactors was in West Virginia when I was asked by Shepherdstown College to give a talk on slavery and the Civil War. And I went to my talk, and as I was preparing to start talking, I noticed that there were Civil War soldiers coming into the room. And the thing that I noticed immediately is that there are a lot more Confederate Civil War soldiers than Union (laughs) Civil War soldiers. And my strategy, because I really understood that they would not believe my argument because I said so. So my strategy was that I didn't say so at all. I did not say slavery was the cause of the Civil War. I quoted every Confederate hero I could think of as saying slavery was the cause of the Civil War. I quoted Jeff Davis, President of the Confederacy, who wrote to his brother early on before the Civil War started about his concern about the Fugitive Slave Law. Now you have probably heard this when people argue it wasn't about slavery, it was about states' rights. You've heard that argument I'm sure. Well this is my question. If you are a believer in states' rights, how do you feel about a federal law that overrides state law? Let me just set this up by saying In Massachusetts, in New York, in Pennsylvania, and a variety of places, there were laws passed in the 1850s or late 1840s called personal liberties laws. These were laws that said that state officials and state facilities could not be used in the capture and return of fugitive slaves. But those state laws were overridden by the fugitive slave law of 1850. My question, if you are a believer in states' rights, where do you stand on that controversy? Well, it's very interesting because Jeff Davis wrote to his brother and said, you know, I don't think we can avoid a conflict because you cannot depend on the federal government to enforce this federal law. My question, is he a believer in states' rights? How about the right of the states to pass pass and enforce personal liberties laws. Well, I mean, that's the kind of thing that I quoted. Um, And then I quoted, I've got some of the quotes here, I'll I'll share them with you. Then I quoted a variety of Confederate sources. For example, um, the editor of a Georgia newspaper that wrote in 1862, quote, Negro slavery is the South and the South is Negro slavery. On and on and on, there are all kinds of quotes you can use from Confederate sources that say the reason we are here is because of the need to defend the institution of slavery. And as I used those sources, it became more and more clear that um, they, the Civil War reenactors were at least listening. It became at least difficult for them to argue with their own heroes about about these issues. And um, that was one of the things that I found most significant and most helpful about using primary sources. John Singleton Mosby, do you know that name? The gray ghost By the way, I live in northern Virginia, not too far from the John Singleton Mosby recreation area. (laughs) But John Singleton Mosby, who is definitely a Confederate hero, towards the end of the the war, actually after the war was over, he looked back at the war. And he said, and I quoted him as saying, the South went to war on account of slavery, direct quote, And then he says, South Carolina went to war, as she said in her secession proclamation, because slavery would not be secure under Lincoln. And then as if I had said, John, give me one more good one. (laughs) And he said, quote, and don't you think South Carolina ought to know what was the cause of her seceding? And my question was, don't you? So that using these kinds of quotes from Confederate sources, I don't think I convinced anybody, but at least they stopped arguing. And my sense of victory came at the end when, they came, when, when the person who had been arguing the loudest and the longest came up to me and said, quote, I still don't believe you, but I guess I'm just going to have to read some more. And I, my response was, you know, I can give you a list of books that you, find, you, would, you would find interesting. But the, the thing that is so central to all this is that this notion of slavery and its relation to the Civil War is not only a historical question, it's a contemporary question. And that's part of what we are facing when we try to teach the history, is that for many people, it's not just about the history. It is about the present. As you prepare for the sesquicentennial of the Civil War, the 150-year anniversary of the Civil War, you're going to have to deal with not only the history but also the contemporary issue. Let me continue this video a second and give you some sense of what you already know, of course, and that is the contemporary significance of this.
4: Sun. turns to fall, a grassroots movement is launched throughout South Carolina to keep the Confederate battle flag flying above the state capitol. In Columbia, we attend a rally organized by the CCC, the Council of Conservative Citizens, This is our first time attending one of those events. Despite the presence of what is billed as the world's largest Confederate flag, the turnout is low. But what is lacking in numbers is more than made up for in passion.
1: You did not inflame.
2: Now, um, it is interesting, you will not find substantial number, at least I have not found substantial numbers of reenactors who would agree with that, with that more radical approach. But you will find substantial numbers who will be acting on the assumption that um, there were positive aspects of the interracial relationships that went on in the South during the time of slavery. There were lots of people, in fact I've had people who who argue with me on this point, argued, uh, and their argument was that. It was like a family. I remember the first time I went to Monticello uh, to do a tour of Jefferson's house and property. They did not use the word slave. They talked about Mr. and always Mr. Mr. Jefferson's servants, and they also used the word family. Of course, after the DNA. Uh, you know, may, may, maybe there was something to what they were saying, but I don't think that they were talking in that regard. Um, but what what often the argument is that reenactors or the neo Confederates use is that there were relationships within the South that non Southerners did not understand. And it was because these non-Southerners did not understand these relationships that they assumed that slavery had the, the totally negative effect that history tells us and former slaves tell us that it had. So that this is a kind of background. I mean, this is a context within which any teaching about slavery in the Civil War takes place. The um, earlier film clip that you saw, The Unfinished Civil War, actually in many ways comes from a book that you may know by Tony Horowitz called Confederates in the Attic. Dispatches from the Unfinished Civil War. And this is a really interesting study of reenactors. If you haven't had a chance to take a look at this, I would advise you to do so. By the way, the person on the cover here is Robert Lee Hodge. Now, Robert Lee Hodge, they call him Hodge, and uh, he is a really dedicated reenactor. And he has developed the method of appearing to be a bloated, dead body in fact yes in fact often they will say to him Hodge do the bloat <laughs> and, and what what they mean is he, he 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 expands himself and he he simulates a dead body in the field and apparently this is important as they're doing reenacting of various um, parts of battle so that your ability to do certain things Becomes a positive and can get you a reputation. Again, a picture of Civil War reenactment in process. Now, these are significant not only because it tells us about the recreational life. Of substantial numbers of people, and you know, as I've talked to some of these people, really doing this reenacting takes up a major portion of their lives. I mean, people talk about starving themselves so that they have a gaunt look, and they remind themselves and and uh, viewers of soldiers during the day, uh, uh, during that day. They talk about. Uh, wearing not too much clothing so that they will feel cold the way the soldiers felt cold. They try in many ways to recreate in a, on an interior basis, inside themselves, the feelings, the, the ways in which these soldiers during Civil War times reacted to their environment. Now this involvement in Civil War reenacting has very significant political consequences. You may have heard this. In 1998, the governor of Virginia, James Gilmore, declared April Civil War – I'm sorry, Confederate History Month. Confederate History Month. That's not only done in Virginia, it's done in a variety of, of states. But the thing that was so significant about Gilmore, Governor Gilmore's uh, presentation in 98 was he argued straightforwardly that this was not a celebration of slavery, that he understood that slavery was a major cause of the war, and that um, he understood that Virginians disapproved And um, he was severely attacked by people who argued, one, he didn't know anything about the Civil War, and two, that his comments um, were an insult to all Virginians and to all Southerners. There are and have been and continue to be strong reactions to the argument that slavery was connected in a direct way to the coming of the Civil War. You saw those signs. Heritage, not hate. Well, sometimes um, it becomes difficult to understand the meaning of those signs. I want to show you a picture from the website of the Georgia Coalition. Georgia Heritage Coalition. In case you didn't recognize this person, this is Al Sharpton, who is a a a political figure in New York State. And I would be willing to bet all of our houses that Al Sharpton never wore a, a, a Nazi swastika in his life and wouldn't ever think of it. But there argument was, and is, that the NAACP, which they have defined as a hate group, is leading an effort to discredit the neo-confederate cause. And that Al Sharpton is symptomatic and symbolic of those who participate in that process. See this? Elect me and I will carry out the final solution. Notice the similarity, the, the, the connection here to the Holocaust. The final solution on these damn Confederates. Another, from, uh, another picture from the website of the Southern Heritage Coalition. This is the Georgia Heritage Coalition. This, the next one is from the Southern Heritage Coalition. The Wall of Hate. And here you have Julian Bond, Al Sharpton again, and Swami uh, Afume, who was the uh, head of the NAACP at this time, and their argument was that there is an effort to spread hate, and the hate is directed at those who, and this is what they argue they're doing, defend the reputation and the history of the South. So it's very interesting that what these coalitions argue is that the Confederacy represents the South, that the Confederacy was the South. And so if you attack the Confederacy, then you are attacking not only what happened during this brief history of the uh, long history of the American South, but you're attacking all of the American South, all Southerners and not only historically but contemporarily now, knowing that you have to face these kinds of possibilities when you are talking about slavery and its role in Southern history and in American history these this is a very sobering kind of. Realization. It is also, I think, important to understand that people are starting to deal with slavery as it existed outside of the South. I think the irony is that some of the neo Confederates that I've talked to are very pleased. For example, when we did the exhibit in the New York Historical Society on slavery in New York, there were people that I talked to. Uh, in the state in which I live, Virginia, and in other southern states who thought that was wonderful because their argument was at last we understand that slavery was not simply a southern institution. Well, of course, there's something to that. It wasn't just a southern institution. However, it was far more significant in the South. It was far more um, determinant of the development of the general culture in the South but it was an institution that affected the nation as a whole. The other thing I found very, very interesting is the way in which some of the neo-Confederates are starting to use the racial issues to their advantage. For example, this is taken from a site on the uh, web, the uh, Southern Heritage Coalition, in which they argue that this black military unit, the first Louisiana Native Guard, was a southern unit dedicated to the Confederate cause, and they argue that historians have not taken seriously the role that African Americans have played in the Confederate military cause. By the way, in um, our book, Slavery and Public History, um, Bruce Levine has an essay which, talk, uh, which talks about African Americans in the Confederacy. At any rate, um, they use this Louisiana Native Guard as an example. That's the picture that you'll find there. Now, I want you to pay particular attention to the faces especially at this end of the picture and let me tell you about the first Louisiana Native Guard. Does anybody know about the first Louisiana Native Guard? The first Louisiana Native Guard was formed... Oh, you do in the back. Great. Uh, Maybe you can help me out then. The first uh, Louisiana Native Guard was formed in New Orleans. They were formed before the Civil War started. They were uh, almost entirely free blacks who form such a native guard not because they were going to war against the nation but because they saw that as one way of establishing themselves as legitimate in the eyes of the the, the, uh, the white establishment in the New Orleans area and they did drilling and they were allowed to do their military drilling and so on the thing that I find interesting about this picture is that this picture is misleading in the most direct way. See that picture? <laughs> that is the picture. This, that, what you've seen, what, this picture is an edited version of this picture. This picture is of the Louisiana Native Guard the Louisiana Native Guard offered its services when after uh, New Orleans fell, offered its services to the United States. And by the way, this is one thing I always try to say. It's very difficult for me to do this because I just say union out of habit. I try not to say union. I try to say the United States. And when I gave my talk to the Civil War reenactors, I tried over and over to talk about the Confederacy and the United States. And somebody then Raise your hand said, excuse me, why do you keep saying United States? And in the most innocent voice I could muster, I said, you mean the United States changed its name? Do you mean that when the ambassador from the United States presented his credentials to various European countries, he said, I am the ambassador from the Union? Well, the point is that it does it, it it does seem to mean something different, and I think it is more difficult for people to argue that they are celebrating the those people who took up arms against the United States, who killed U.S. soldiers, and uh, so I I try to say United States on a regular basis, but as you can imagine, it's hard to because. You know, union just kind of pops out, but at any rate, um, not only did the Native Guard fight for the United States, but this picture became the model for for a portrait that 's the portrait. This portrait was used as a recruiting poster for African-Americans who might want to take up the call of um, the United States after 1863 for recruiting African-Americans. And you can see, look at the, look at the similarities. There is the painting. That's the photo. Yes? Oh yes. yes. In fact, what wh- sort
1: of sort of or uh, uh,
2: Yes, well what you know what happened it's very interesting because the Native Guard was rejected initially by confederates. Um, you know as I said the Native Guard was formed before the war and they they drilled and so on. When the war started and uh, New Orleans uh, and and, uh, Louisiana generally came under attack, the Confederates forces were very suspicious of this Native Guard and wanted them to have no weapons, wanted them to not be involved at all. It was only after uh, New Orleans had been uh, surrendered that the Native Guard then became involved, but they became involved as U.S. soldiers. But these kinds of issues are, I found at least, very disturbing to some people who don't want to see the issue of race injected into this because they feel that uh, by saying that the Confederacy was all about maintaining the institution of slavery, by saying that African-Americans were opposed to the Confederacy, by saying that slavery was a terrible institution under which African-Americans suffered, you are saying that the Confederacy was a racist movement. And maybe this, maybe this says something positive. I have no idea. But maybe in the 21st century um, it is encouraging that even those people who want to celebrate the confederacy don't want to be seen as celebrating a racist movement but of course if you look at the dictionary definition of racist movement it seems to me that confederacy fits because after all slavery was not an institution that was a non-racist institution you know by definition it was and and it's also very interesting too when i teach Um, issues and courses on slavery, and I try to make the point that slavery played a major role in American history, which was major to all Americans, not just African Americans. For example, America moved to the point of developing what we would now call racial theory because it was trying to defend itself against the charge of hypocrisy. I mean, here we had a nation which was coming into existence making an argument that the reason it could justify a war against England for its own independence is because it believed in human freedom when that same nation was practicing and profiting from and promoting human slavery. Well, Mr. Jefferson, how can you possibly make those two things compatible? Well, what you find is the notion becomes, well, we do believe in human equality. We do believe in human freedom, except for some people. And that's where you get the rise of this whole notion of racial theory. This makes these people different. And so if we want to understand, and I'm afraid this, I would argue that this goes for anybody, anybody, regardless of where you are, where you're from, what color you are, what race you identify with, whatever, I would argue that this is true for everybody, that all of us would be different if that racial theory had never developed. Now, what we can try to do is to say, I don't believe it. And you can try to move yourself beyond it. But regardless, even if you're doing this, it becomes the center. It becomes the touchstone. That's what you're trying to move beyond and so on. So that the issue of slavery is significant when you talk about America because it is central to what America and Americans are today. You know, as I say, if you're, if you're socialized in this country, some of that has helped to shape who you are regardless of who you are. You know, obviously you could argue to, to varying degrees, but it's there. And um, it's very interesting that when I've taught outside the United States, one of the things that people always want to know about is race. How does race function in America? What does slavery mean in American history? Now, I taught it at the University of Munich in the late uh, 80s, 88, 89, just before the wall came down. And, uh, in fact, I argue that I brought the wall down. Well, because the wall had been up for decades and I had never been there. I went there for one semester, wall came down. Actually, it was more than one semester. It was two semesters. Anyway. But anyway, one of the things I noticed was that whenever I was, I was teaching American history, whenever I would talk about slavery in my teaching of American history, my German students would get really interested. They'd ask question after question after question. They would have long discussions. I mean, if, you, if I mentioned slavery, you could forget about almost anything else you wanted to cover for that class period because they were going to talk about it in a variety of ways. And one of the things, finally, after that happened two or three times, I asked, I said, why do you people care so much about this institution of slavery. I mean, you didn't have slavery in the way that America had slavery within the bounds of Germany. And after some brief discussion, one of the students who I came to know pretty well after this said to me, you know, we'll have to be honest. One of the reasons we're interested in slavery in the United States is because that's one thing you can't blame us for. (laughs) Well, it's very interesting because from from what uh, many of my German students told me, that even though they had not been alive during the era of, of Hitler, still they always found that they had to answer questions. Whenever they left a the country, they went to other places, they were always subject to questions about Nazism and the Third Reich and so on. And uh, it seems to me that Americans face a similar kind of thing. Uh, with reference to the institution of slavery, and as, especially as we move towards acknowledging and commemorating the Civil War. The Civil War, as you know, was the most costly war in American history. You know, 620,000 Americans killed in that war. Uh, it was a war that profoundly changed the entire nation, not only the relationships within the nation, but the nation itself. And uh, therefore, to talk about the Civil War, as we're going to more and more as we move towards 2010 and 11, um, will be to talk about the major foundation of American society. We are already approaching this. Next year, as you know, 2009 is the bicentennial uh, c- centennial of Abraham Lincoln. And as we look at Abraham Lincoln, we are asking questions and, and uh, I sit on the, the, um, the National Abraham Lincoln Bicentennial Commission. And the Bicentennial Commission always finds itself being asked questions about Lincoln and slavery. Did the Emancipation Proclamation abolish slavery? Well, obviously, the answer is no, it didn't, except in certain places. But in those certain places, at the, at the time it went into effect, um, Lincoln and the United States really had no power to abolish slavery at, 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 uh, in those places at that moment. They could later. And I would argue the Emancipation Proclamation was very significant because it set the tone for the rest of the war. It It also, incidentally, I think you can argue that it helped to ensure the fact that the United States would win that war. Because you realize that on the eve of the, uh, of the issuance of the Emancipation Proclamation, in various places in Europe, in Germany, in France, in England, there were conversations about whether those places in Europe, those countries, should be supporting the South. At the time of the Civil War, the South produced seven-eighths of the world's cotton. And that meant for the cotton textile industries in a variety of places in Europe. The South was like the OPEC of today's society. And and there were all kinds of arguments that said that Europe should be supporting and supplying the South to make sure that Europe continued to get access to Southern cotton. But there were important anti-slavery elements in a variety of European nations, and when Lincoln announced the change in the object of the war, he said that as of January 1st, 1863, all those slaves being held by those in rebellion against the central government, against the federal government, were free. And that meant that the war was now about ending slavery and the anti-slavery forces in those countries put real pressure on the governments and what we found was that they did not supply support to the south. So, I mean, these were, these were very important issues. Issues that as you deal with the subsistence of the Civil War, you need to deal with in ways and I'll point this out, and I think we need to uh, take some time to discuss back and forth, um, in ways that were not done during the centennial. If you look at the centennial commemorations, you will find virtually no mention or very little mention of the institution of slavery. It was all about states' rights. It was all about In some ways, when I hear these arguments, it sounds very much like it was a Revolutionary War. I mean, I hear people who argue from the Confederate point of view the way America argued from the American point of view when talking about the Revolutionary War. That is, a, a fight for freedom, for independence. Well, these are the kinds of issues that as we move towards the sesquicentennial, centennial, we're going to have to deal with how do we answer those kinds of arguments? Now, um, just oh here, let me this. Just one more. We talked about this book yesterday. that is slavery and public history, but part of the impetus for this book, part of the reason that we did this book comes out of these kinds of experiences related to the difficulty of talking about slavery and relating slavery to the most important issues in American history. Making Americans aware of and, and helping them to accept the fact that slavery is central. African American history is American history made by Americans in America. You take slavery out of American history, you don't have American history. You don't have America. You may have a very interesting history, but it's something else. Because part of what we are as a nation, as a culture, as a people, have to do with our efforts over the centuries to deal with this great American contradiction the contradiction between the sacred words of America as we can read in the Declaration of Independence and the practice of America as we can see in the actions in the daily life of the man who wrote the the Declaration of Independence. I'm talking about Thomas Jefferson. So let me stop there and ask you, what do you have to add? What kinds of questions you have to ask and what do you anticipate as issues you will have to deal with, as you go about celebrating the centennial of the Civil War.
0: Remember that we're... <laughs> This is not on. You want to
2: use. You want to use this. Technology <laughs> at all levels. While, while they're doing that, let me just say that part of the, part of the reason that I uh, got really interested in this is because Pennsylvania, I, I did some... Uh, work with Pennsylvania and talking to people in Pennsylvania about their efforts to deal with the coming of the subcentennial, and um, I suspect that in many states there will be other efforts to try to deal with the Suscentennial in the same way, but I, I applaud those efforts. Difficult as they are, I think they're really, really important.
0: Yeah, we've, got a, we've got a live mic now, so questions?
2: One of the issues I know we're going to be dealing with, because we're already dealing with it, I'd be
8: curious your comments on it, is uh, they're really a move to get rid of the term Confederate. You know, the Confederate Air Force changed its name, at Vanderbilt there was a Confederate Hall which they changed to commemorate and went to suit, went back. So you know, those folks who are really saying there's an attempt and there was movements in Richmond to get rid of some of the monuments on, I'd be curious about your comments on that. How do we deal with that?
2: Well, you know, when I think about the, uh, the movement in Richmond and the monuments, I think of you know Monument Avenue in Richmond where they have the variety of monuments dedicated to the heroes of the Civil War Do um, you remember the big controversy when Arthur Ashe monument was going to be put along and um and at that point we had a black governor of um Virginia who made the interesting and somewhat amusing comment that all those all those heroes along the avenue of heroes—they may have all been heroes, but they all lost. And he argued that Arthur Ashe won, <laughs> and should and should not be placed. Uh, da- David Duke, who you saw in the—you um, uh, saw the signs at least in the in the video—a um, former, incidentally, a former Ku Klux Klan leader—was um, one of those who argued against Arthur Ashe's statue being placed there. But I mean this is an example of the way in which this history complicates contemporary issues. Obviously, Arthur Ashe, if you really want to look at it, had very little if anything to do with our memory of or should have anything to do with our memory of the Confederacy. However, because race is tied up in all of this, and as you may know, some of you may have noticed it seems to be tied up in our current politics because it's almost impossible to escape that. You know, we can act as if we don't notice, but it takes real effort to act as if you don't notice. Fact is, that race plays such a central role in American history and therefore in American relationships in the contemporary society that, um, again, it shows you the importance of having to deal with slavery and the issues of race in history because if you came in from Mars and you just landed here, you might not understand how Americans react to a variety of issues if you don't understand the extent to which race and slavery has played such an important role in the shaping of this society. So, yeah, there are people who want to get rid of the name Confederacy. But I should also argue that there are people who want to preserve that. And there are still Confederate History Months celebrated today. In fact, last April, Confederate History Month, there was a major parade in Virginia and a variety of other places which celebrated the Confederacy which, which, well, I won't say celebrated, which commemorated the Confederacy and displayed the Confederate flag. They, these were controversial, as they remain controversial, but uh, there is an argument. There are people who would say, yeah, we want to get rid of the, the name Confederacy, but there are other people who want to say, no, no, what we want to do is to make sure everybody doesn't misunderstand what the Confederacy was about. And they are the people who have sh- who show you, for example, the, the pictures of... Um, Of the the uh, the Native Guard, the Louisiana Native Guard, and so on. Yeah.
7: Yeah. Well, this this question isn't doesn't have anything to do with contemporary, and it it may even be outside your Mm -hmm. field of specialty. Mm -hmm. But you're such an obviously learned man, and your European experience. I've always been curious. You said this was one thing the Germans said we couldn't blame on them. Well, maybe we can't blame the Germans. But it seems to me that I read that in 1451, when the Portuguese first contacted black sub-Saharan Africa, they brought back the first cargo of slaves. How extensive was that trade before America was discovered? Did the Portuguese and the Castilians institute slavery on their islands? Were they traded, the slaves traded to France, to England, to Germany, to Scandinavia? And what became of those black people? And did the Islamic... uh, Spain have black African (laughs) slavery?
2: You know, when you start to look at this kind of, technically you can't call it ancient history, but a lot older history than I study, Um, one of the things that becomes really clear is that American history is just this brief moment. You know, there was a time when the Iberian Peninsula, that is, Spain and Portugal were occupied and ruled by black people. Berbers. Well, yeah, especially African-Americans from uh, northern Africa who occupied the Iberian Peninsula. And um, therefore, the whole issue of race as it functioned in Iberia is different. And is it only, am I the only person in the world who has noticed this that as you move farther south in Europe, the people tend to look a little darker. Do you suppose now that the, the, the Moors who came in and occupied and ruled Iberia were there for hundreds of years from 711 until 1492 or that era? era for, do you suppose that in those hundreds of years, Somebody got to know somebody well enough to have kids. <laughs> and do, do you suppose that some of those people who descended and who still live there are what we in today's society would call mixed-race people? Well, the, the fact is that, sure, slavery is not an American invention. In fact, you know, the word slave comes from the word applied to those people from Eastern Europe who were used as forced laborers in the Mediterranean who were producing sugar. These were the Slavs who were used as forced laborers, and we, from that, the American kind of mispronunciation and so on, slaves come. So that there was slavery in Africa. You know, when I teach slavery, and I talk about slavery in Africa, and I talk about the role of Africans in the early uh, African slave trade, I can't tell you how many times somebody will put their hands up and say, you mean they enslave their own people? (laughs) Now to deal with that, if I had time I'd show you, but to deal with that what I have is a PowerPoint slide which has an outline of Africa. And I make the point, Africa is the second largest continent in the world. Inside that outline of Africa, I have Europe, North America, Asia. The point being, Africa is a very, very big place. And then I have another slide which has the outline of of the continent of Africa, and I have the names of the variety of linguistic groups, religious groups, cultural groups, national groups, on and on and on and on and on. And then then I have another one which has the United States which fits inside the Sahara Desert. Uh, And then I say, Africa is six times the size of Europe. Do you mean to tell me that in the First World War and the Second World War those Europeans killed their own people? I mean, if we can see that there's a difference between Germany and France in the Second World War, think about the difference that might have existed between people who lived in northern Africa and people who lived in southern Africa. It would be like living in the other side of the world. So that Africa was and remains a very complex place. We're we're not dealing with Africa. We're dealing with the peoples in a variety of places within this continent. But to answer your question... um, Europeans were involved, various Europeans, involved to varying degrees. The Portuguese were involved very early in terms of the African slave trade, in terms of importing Africans back to various parts of the uh, Iberian Peninsula. You know, the irony is, if Columbus had not, I want to put this word in big question mark, discovered, like when I discover your car, uh, (laughs) if he had not discovered America, there would probably not have been the need for the substantial labor sources that Africa provided, because they didn't need that much labor in Europe. But coming to this undiscovered continent, you know, what Europeans often refer to as the empty continent. Native Americans had a hard time with that. But anyway, um, they came and needed laborers. And so African slavery. Became necessary for the development of quote the new world, but when you go, when you go uh, yesterday, when we when we were doing a lecture, we showed some um, some pictures of the um, slavery memorials in Holland, because the Dutch were very much involved in in the uh, transatlantic slave trade, and uh, in a variety of places. They are trying to deal with the memory of slavery. But in Germany, they don't see slavery as that important to their history. But the, you know, the irony is that, one, after the First World War, the French used African colonial troops as part of their forces to occupy northern Germany. When Hitler came to power one of the first atrocities he ordered was the sterilization of all children born to German women and any of these African troops. When Hitler came to power, of course, one of the things he wanted to do was to take over the world. But he needed a model for how he would deal with parts of the world like parts of Africa. He sent a delegation to the American South to observe Jim Crow, to observe segregation. And they went through and took notes and they went back to report to Hitler, and do you know what they called the a report—the Southern Solution. That's what they called it, the Southern Solution. I, I did a I did a, a series of articles and some lectures in Germany on this to make the point that Germany and Hitler were were connected to America and American race and American racial theory in a variety of ways. In fact, you know, Germany, um, uh, Hitler read many of the theoretical approaches to race that were produced by many people in the United States or read by people in the United States in their argument for, uh, for white supremacy during, during this time. So there, there are really important connections. But again, that's one of the things that makes this whole discussion of slavery and race in the United States significant because it didn't only affect the United States. Through the United States, it affected other places as well.
5: Let's the lady in pink. her Thank you. Um, I uh, grew up in Georgia. My family's been in this country since the 1600s. And mm-hmm. so I had many ancestors who fought uh, for the South and in the, in the war, as we like to say. Uh, and the attitude at that time, of course, was you know, slavery wasn't part of the Civil War. It was about states rights, just as you said. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Now as I, as I grew up and moved a little farther north, I ended up marrying a, uh, a man who's African-American. I ended up in Boston, and now we have a, we have a child who uh, potentially um, my ancestors owned her ancestors. So this is a, another interesting uh, conversation to have. Mm-hmm. But one of the places that I work is Faneuil Hall. And Faneuil Hall is one of those uh, places called the Cradle of Liberty, by the way, and uh, the abolitionist basically got their foot in the door there in 1837 uh, to, uh, you know, talk about the killing of Lovejoy in Illinois, the abolitionist um, uh, printer. And uh, 20 years later, in 1857, uh, Jefferson Davis spoke there. Uh, He was actually invited there by the Democratic Party of Massachusetts. He was in Boston after having gone to Bowdoin College to accept honorary degree, which by the way was rescinded once the war began. Um, and it's interesting, I don't know how many people know about uh, Davis's speech at the time, but um, his speech interestingly parallels Wendell Phillips, who was one of the uh, founders of the abolitionist movement there in Boston. Mm-hmm. And if any of you have ever been to Faneuil Hall, it has some wonderful uh, paintings there. We have Samuel Adams, the father of the revolution. We have John Hancock. We have George Washington at Dorchester Heights. And when Wendell Phillips gave his speech before uh, Davis did, he pointed to those uh, fathers of the American Revolution and you know, talked about the fight for liberty and the liberty denied to uh, those millions uh, south of the Mason-Dixon line. Jefferson Davis pointed to the same. Mm-hmm. And uh, he basically said, yes, you know, we, have, we fought for that liberty during the Revolution, and that liberty includes the right to do as we see fit within our borders. That is, do mm-hmm. own slaves. Sure. And you know, so, you know,
2: um, Abraham Lincoln agreed with much of that. Absolutely. I mean, you read Abraham Lincoln's first inaugural address. He says straight out, he says, I have no intention to interfere with slavery in the places where it currently exists. Abraham Lincoln believed that slavery was protected by the Constitution. You know, the irony is that if the Civil War, if South Carolina, which led the movement, and other uh, southern states had not seceded from the United States, Abraham Lincoln would have, according to his own philosophy, have felt that he had no power to move against slavery within the territories where it currently existed, because he believed that slavery was protected by the Constitution. What he wanted was slavery not to expand, but in terms of dealing with slavery in South Carolina, in Georgia, in a variety of places, he would not have, at least according to his, his theories and what he was saying at the time, he would not have taken action against slavery. But when those places seceded from the United States, removed themselves from the protection of the Constitution, threatened the nation as a whole, then he saw that he did have the power and the obligation as the president during wartime to take such action. And that leads him to ultimately that and his conversations, this is a very interesting thing too, with Frederick Douglass, because the relationship between Frederick Douglass and and, and, uh, Lincoln was absolutely astounding. But anyway, that led him to eventually issuing the Emancipation Proclamation.
9: Thank you. Uh, It occurs to me we have an opportunity with the sesquicentennial to get beyond what what I consider to be fairly easy Mm -hmm. interpretation, which is military history, political history. It can be very dispassionate. We can talk about units. We can talk about parties. Mm
7: -hmm.
9: But when we talk about slavery, you begin to put faces on, and that's not to say that you can't put faces on military history and everything, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. It, it is a remarkable thing, and for a lot of our staffs, it is a very scary thing Yeah, because we have the opportunity to not only talk about the race relation, but there are other wonderful things which give us a layer which take us beyond the word war. We could talk about the schisms of religion, Protestant religions. We can talk about the fear of Protestants with immigration. There are so many things, but all of these things are scary scary. They're scary to talk about. Uh, They're not safe. We're putting staffs Mm -hmm. out there in very risky ways. Um, I know at my institution, uh, we try to deal very upfront with the best way, and you talk about the idea of letting this past speak for itself is probably one of the best ways Mm -hmm. of helping staffs feel comfortable. But what are some other things that you think about uh, that are going to help staffs feel prepared really getting people to have not just an intellectual reaction to the Civil War, but to begin to have an emotional reaction and make sure that that's okay. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and you're? Um, I'm Mark Howell. I work at the American Civil War Center up American... in Richmond. Uh, in, I'm sorry? In Richmond. In Richmond. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Maybe you can tell us about the controversy that was going on for a while about the effort to display the Confederate flag on the exterior
9: of the uh, the museum. Well, I'd rather talk more about <laughs> the acceptance of the, Jeff- uh, the Jefferson Davis statue and I'll mm-hmm. talk to you about that afterwards. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, what what he's talking about yeah. is that, that there was an effort to establish a uh, Lincoln statue in Richmond which was uh, very very controversial and uh, as I as I said uh, uh, yesterday uh, they asked me if I'd come down and do a, a talk at the uh, unveiling of the statue, and I couldn't because I was out of the country. But later I found out that I'm happy I didn't because a Klan showed up to to do a protest. But by, by land, by air and sea, and land. By, yeah, by air, air, land, and, and sea. But you know, the thing is that what your museum does, and what, why, one of the reasons I think it is so important is that it cover something so basic to America. And, and it's not as if the Civil War is just kind of, oh, another thing that happened. The Civil War is not just another thing that happened. When you look at the Civil War, the context of the Civil War, the positions being taken, and the controversy that, was, that led to it and that has followed from it, it is more than just another thing that happened. It's central to understanding what America is and therefore the suscentennial becomes more than just another commemoration. It becomes really difficult. It is that difficulty and that centrality that makes for the difficulty that you have in making this presentation to a broad American public. I mean, if we were talking about something unimportant, it wouldn't be all that difficult, but we're talking about something that's basic, and that's part of the reason so that you know, what you should tell, what you, what I think you can tell your staff, and, and, and this applies generally, is that they might have difficulties, they might find differences of opinion, they might find resistance precisely because this is so central. It is so important. But that is also why it needs to be done. We shouldn't pretend as if it didn't happen. It is this slavery didn't exist or it wasn't all that important. Because if we do that, then we are ruling out something so basic to our society and to what we all are that um, it doesn't help us to understand ourselves or our relationships to one another.
8: Uh, Yeah, Uh, earlier you mentioned about some of the earlier laws that had to do with maintaining the institution of slavery. Mm -hmm. Uh, In France and Britain and some other countries usually the first step taken against or towards the abolition of slavery was usually targeting it as the the, the trade in slaves usually came first. Mm -hmm. And this is the first year that I can recall that we ever had a fairly noticeable celebration of the 1808 law that made the importation of slaves illegal, signed into law by Thomas Jefferson. Uh, And, of course, uh, uh, we know that the Emancipation Proclamation wasn't the first federal law, executive order, whatever, against the institution of slavery. Do you think we'll ever get to the point where we credit or recognize George Washington for signing the uh, uh, American Slave Trade Act of 1794, or Adams for signing the Slave Trade Act of 1800, or Monroe for signing the Slave Trade Act of 1820, which made the importation of slaves piracy? and those incremental steps along the way and not just look at all the, the, the laws to maintain the institution mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. jump over to the Emancipation Proclamation.
2: Yeah, I think that, uh, in fact, this is one of the things that I think if you, you have staffs that are going to deal with this issue that they ought to know, and that is it wasn't just all of a sudden during the Civil War there was action taken to bring slavery to an end. There were many examples of... Effort to limit slavery or the uh, the slave trade and so on. you ever heard of the book called Hanging Captain Gordon? Nathaniel Gordon was the only person ever executed under the 1820s law uh, that made piracy or it made made the the, the uh, bringing of slaves into America after the 1808 end of the transatlantic slave trade. Uh, It made that a capital offense, but Nathaniel Gordon was the only person ever executed under that law, and he was executed during Lincoln's administration. The law went into effect in the 1820s, but he was executed under Lincoln's administration. And it's very interesting because the Gilder Lehrman Institute, which has its um, uh, collection at the New York Historical Society, has a letter from Lincoln in fact it's an exchange from Gordon to Lincoln. Gordon was being held in jail in New York and wrote to Lincoln saying hey look you know everybody else who's been caught for these issues have been let go. I don't want to have to be executed and Lincoln wrote back to him basically saying I'm sorry this is what the law says and in fact Gordon was executed but the significance is that Lincoln had to make the case that other people had been um, arrested under the law but had not been executed, but the Civil War added a certain urgency to it. So it wasn't as if these laws hadn't been passed before, but the Civil War made them more urgent and more likely to be applied. But you're right that this is a process over time. And when I teach this, what I teach is that the Civil War was a result, ultimately, of the failure of America's compromise on slavery. That America had been compromising on slavery since its very beginning. You, know, you don't find the word slavery in the American Constitution, but it compromises on slavery in a lot of ways. It says, well, you can count, you can count three-fifths of your slaves for the purpose of population so you can get more, represented, more representation in the US House of Representatives. Uh, We'll put into the Constitution a fugitive slave clause which says that if you owe service in one state, you cannot escape that service by removing yourself to another state. And uh, we'll also put in the Constitution that um, you can't move against the transatlantic slave trade for at least 20 years. But that compromise didn't work as America expanded, and so you got the Missouri Compromise, which says that as that the state of Missouri was added to balance the state of Maine, Maine a free state, Missouri a slave state, they drew a line at the southern border of Missouri and they said okay fine slavery cannot exist above this line, north of this line. That was another compromise. And then as that compromise did not work as we went through the Mexican War and so on, we got the compromise 1850 which did a lot of things. It brought in California as a free state but it set up and it also uh, abolished the slave trade in Washington, D.C., not slavery, but the slave trade in Washington, D.C., and it also brought in this fugitive slave law, which is the most harsh fugitive slave law in American history. You know about this fugitive slave law, which said if you're accused of being a fugitive slave, you have no right of self-defense. You have no right to a jury trial. You have no right to speak in your own defense. You have no right to a lawyer. Wow. Well, that really was the last compromise that worked for even a short period of time. You know, the Kansas-Nebraska Act and all those kinds of things worked as we moved through the 1850s, including John Brown's raid on Harpers Ferry. All those things made that compromise increasingly difficult. So that by the time we get to the Civil War, we have tried compromise. It hasn't worked. And then as a result, what we have is war. But again, that's an example that it, I think it's important for you and your staffs to understand when they, and to explain To the public, so that they know that civil war didn't just happen out of no place. It was a part of a process which ultimately resulted in the failure of compromise and the result of war.
0: I I know our time is drawing to a close, and I know people will begin to dribble out of here. Let me make one announcement beforehand, and we'll go to your question. At 3:30 this afternoon, there will be a meeting in Aqueduct A, which is Come out here, turn right, another right, and it'll be on your left. That would be a meeting to discuss work that is underway in the various states to plan for the Centennial I know that we've got Tennessee, Kentucky, Pennsylvania, South Carolina, Virginia here, and uh, the ASLH has been for the past several months convening a conference call once every four to six weeks just to share information. So if you want to find out what's going on in those states, if you are representing a state that is not been part of those calls or you just want to come and hear what's up, please join us at 3.30 for about an hour-long meeting. It's not in the program anywhere, but it's going to happen at 3.30 this afternoon in which is Just a right, a right, and it'll be on your left.
6: Well, I'm really glad to hear that. I'm from Seattle, Washington, and it's been wonderful to hear an entire session Mm -hmm. and the truism all of my professional career has been that there was no civil war in the Northwest, that people fled to the West to get away from it, but any common sense will tell you that people brought the war with them in their minds. And because we have no battlefields to speak of and our reenactors are doing bizarre things rather than (laughs) civil war-related things...
0: Unlike the others? (laughs) We're able
6: to focus on the issues for instance of slavery. Mm -hmm. The last fugitive slave to flee Washington Territory fled in September of 1860 to the Crown Colony of Victoria. Uh So in 2011 in Seattle, there'll be a citywide research project a kind of civic literacy experience in researching the civil war in washington territory this is the best way i can think of of doing public history with such a history is dangerous that's what makes it worth doing yeah. um and i i just want to thank you for getting this out of the southeast um, and making it a national issue
2: well you know just to, just to 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 uh to compliment your point let me just say Um, You know, Bob was saying, um, I spend the spring semester at the University of Hawaii. I want to tell you about the Civil War in Hawaii. I want to tell you, and I'll do do this, I know we're running out of time, so I won't take a lot of time with this. There's more to it than what I'm going to say, but let me just give you the brief uh, introduction. When Lincoln was elected to office in 1860, there were mock elections held in Honolulu again in 1864 when he was elected a second time. He won in Honolulu in both those mock elections by a larger percentage than he won in any place in the United States. He was really popular in Hawaii, in large part because of the missionaries who had come to Hawaii. Many of them had come from New England. Many of them were Republican. Many of them were vast supporters of the Republican Party and of the Republican (coughs) candidate, Abraham Lincoln. When the war started, King Kamehameha, the ruler of Hawaii, um, pressed and, and was, it, it got accepted uh, the rule that Hawaii was not to be involved in the war, that, 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 that um, Hawaii would remain neutral. However, a merchant, if you've ever been to Hawaii, you know where I'm talking about, on the big island of Hawaii in the city of Hilo put together a militia unit and offered that Hawaiian militia unit to Abraham Lincoln to fight in the Civil War for the U.S. I have not been able to find Lincoln's reaction to that, but I have found in a Hawaiian newspaper the fact that the guy was putting together the unit and he was he was going to offer the unit. There was a southern-born woman who lived in Honolulu who flew a Confederate flag from her balcony, what in Hawaii they call a lanai, from her balcony. Her neighbors ripped the flag down and, and burned it. Um, when Lincoln was assassinated in 1865, there was uh, a large, long article in a Hawaiian newspaper that a, a, a student of mine in Hawaii who can read and translate Hawaiian, translate into English. And it talked about how wonderful Lincoln was, how much he was revered in Hawaii, and so on. And the last thing I'll tell you is when Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation, it encouraged debate in Hawaii about Hawaii's uh, uh, contract labor system in Asia. People people argued that the bringing of Asians to Hawaii to work on the pineapple plantations, the sugar plantations, was the equivalent of slavery. And just as Lincoln had abolished slavery, this contract labor system ought to be abolished. Well, it wasn't abolished. It was amended in a variety of ways and reformed. But you can see these issues are issues that even in Hawaii, Were being debated. The last thing I'll tell you, and this really knocked me out, I found just just very recently, I found um, records of an American sea captain who sailed into Honolulu, and apparently he made connections with King Kamehameha and the queen. And he wrote in his records that he wrote the queen was beautiful, and he said she was mixed race. She was. He called her a mulatto and apparently the queen and the king had him to Iolani Palace for parties and so on. He really appreciated that. And then he wrote, and this knocked me out, he wrote, he said, you know, King Kamehameha is dark. And he wrote, no, he's black. And then he wrote, you know, in a southern market we could get a thousand dollars for him. (laughs) So these issues are not just mainland American issues. They affect almost any place that America touches, these issues touch. You know, when, when, uh, when the U.S. blockaded southern ports to keep cotton from being exported, it also kept sugar from being exported. And that drove the price of sugar, like the price of gas, you know, through the roof. Hawaii went crazy. That's why you find so many sugar plantations in Hawaii. And after the war is over, at the end of the 19th century in the early 20th century, they brought hundreds of former slaves from Alabama and Tennessee to Hawaii to the plantations of Maui to work on the sugar plantations. And in fact, when I go back in the spring, I am going to the Alexander Baldwin Museum. I met the the director who told me that he's got records of who these people were, when they came, where they came from, and so on. They established what were called the Alabama camp on Maui. So, you know, these are things. This is not just a regional issue, not even just a mainland American issue. Yeah, listen, thank you very much. I really enjoy it.